All right, now, as you know, we're in this new series, right, called Prayers That Made a Difference. And in it, we're looking at people who prayed key prayers at key moments that moved the hand of God, that made a difference in their situation. And I hope that this past week you've been hearing from God in his word, getting into the word, and then praying some things that matter, right? And so uh, last week we began a three-part message that is looking at the prayer life of Elijah. That's part of the broader series on prayers that made a difference, right? And we saw that Elijah is a man who's just like us. He has a nature just like us. And he stood in the presence of God, right? Heard God's word. And sometimes he knew what God was about to do, and, and he proclaimed it. And then, like with, you know, there's going to be a famine. And then there were other times where he was a little bit surprised with what God did and wasn't sure what God was going to do, like with the um, widow woman's son that died. But always, he prayed earnestly and fervently. And so this week, I want to begin looking at what I call the mountain prayers of Elijah. So would you turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 18? And uh, we left off last week with verse 19. So let's, let's get a running start. We're going to begin at verse 16 here, okay? And it says that, Ahab, oh, Ahab went to meet Elijah. And when, Eli- when he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? Elijah said to him, I have not made trouble for Israel, but you and your father's family have. You've abandoned the Lord's command and have followed the Baals. All right, so pause there for a second. So God, through his prophet Elijah, clearly identifies the problem. They have forsaken their covenant with God. They're worshiping idols. They're worshiping the false god, Baal. And the worship of Baal, by the way, it was a detestable and depraved practice. It was a fertility cult which involved the use of both male and female shrine prostitutes in worship and also the horrific practice of child sacrifice. That's awful. And, and, and the worship of Baal, by the way, it wasn't new in Israel during this time. You may remember um, as far back as the time of Judges, Gideon tore down the altar to Baal, his father's altar to Baal, and the Asherah pole that stood next to it. But though it was practiced by some people, it really wasn't formalized. Uh, Many people still practiced the worship of Yahweh at the tabernacle and then later the temple. But then something happened, right? This process that's been repeated throughout history. And I want you to kind of see this process, right? It starts in David's day. In David's day, the worship of false gods was really kind of suppressed. And the worship of Yahweh was very much the norm. And then in Solomon's day, well, Solomon, you know, he established the temple. And so the worship of Yahweh remained an officially sanctioned uh, practice. But at the same time, Solomon introduced the worship of false gods as well. And then shortly after his son Rehoboam took the throne, there was this civil war, and the, and the kingdom was divided. The, the southern uh, tribes of Judah and Benjamin remained loyal to the line of David, but the northern tribes all revolted and formed a new country that they called Israel. And Jeroboam, their first king, he was afraid that the people, if they kept going to Jerusalem to worship, would, um, their loyalty would revert back to the line of David. And so as a political move, he establishes, he makes these two golden calf idols and he establishes the worship of these false gods in the northern part and the southern part of his kingdom. And he says, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Now, and the people, they they took rather um, easily to the worship of these false gods. Now, that probably wouldn't have happened right after David's reign because the people were so focused on the worship of the God of Israel. But after Solomon had introduced the worship of false gods and made it uh, culturally acceptable, um, it became easy for the people to just follow these new false gods, right? 
And so for several more kings, several more decades, we see um, these kings who are devoted to these false gods and the people devoted to all kinds of false gods, including the false god Baal. And then along comes Ahab. And in chapter 16 of our book here, the author describes him this way. He says, Ahab did more evil in the sight of the Lord than any of those who were before him. He began to serve and worship the false god Baal. He formalized it and he normalized it like no one else. He built a temple to Baal in his capital city of Samaria and established it as the official state religion. And then he went on to marry Jezebel, the daughter of King Sidon, who was a devout worshiper of the false god Asherah, which was also a debased fertility cult. And then Ahab and Jezebel together, after promoting and sanctioning all this, we saw last week in chapter 17 that they began to try to eliminate the worship of Yahweh, and they sought to silence any voices of opposition to that. And I want you to see this process, because in the short span of a little over 60 years, like less than a lifetime, Israel went from mostly worshiping and serving Yahweh to accepting false gods in their culture to the official sanctioning and promotion of these false gods by the state to the official opposition of biblical worship by the state to eventually the official persecution of those who spoke for Yahweh by the state. And this is where we are when we get to this spot in our story today. Most of the prophets of the Lord are either in hiding or they've been killed. And it looks like Elijah is the only one left who's speaking for God. So going on in verse 19, Elijah tells Ahab, he says, Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Now, notice here that this is very bold. I mean, you don't just talk to kings this way, right? I mean, King Ahab is there. He probably has a contingent of soldiers around him as a security detail. And remember, Ahab, I mean, he's already executed many of the Lord's prophets. And with one word, he could just have Elijah put to death here. But, but Elijah doesn't seem to be concerned because he knows God's doing something. So first here, he talks back to the king. I mean, and Ahab blames him for all the trouble that Israel is facing. And Elijah turns it back on him. He looks him right in the eye and says, no, I haven't brought any trouble on Israel, but you've been troubling Israel, this drought in this family, it's at your feet. And then next he gives the king instructions. Now, that's not normal either, right? I mean, kings don't take instructions. They give instructions, right? I mean, they may take counsel from some trusted advisors, but in the end, they're the ones who give the instructions. But here Elijah just instructs him, go to Mount Carmel, bring the people, bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, right? So now, so what's going on here? Now, this isn't Elijah, like, just mouthing off or something like that. It's not him being a hothead or just trying to win an argument. Remember, he got this by standing in the presence of God, right? So this isn't some doctrine that we develop here about how we should be disrespectful to those in authority or anything like that, you know. Even Paul repented, remember, for how he spoke with the high priest, right? But at the same time, we realize that the church is not permitted by God to speak things that are untrue about a situation to authority. And so in this case, God, who had spent three and a half years trying to get the attention of the people during the drought, has now decided he's going to do something that will really get their attention. Going on in verse 20. He says, So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Now, I'm not sure what's going through Ahab's 
mind here. I'm not sure why he doesn't just give the word and have Elijah executed there right on the spot, just be rid of them altogether. I mean, some think that, you know, perhaps Ahab being so deceived, being uh, so committed to this false god, Baal, sees this coming contest as an opportunity to possibly embarrass Elijah, like to solidify his rule, to convince all the people that it really was Elijah who was causing all this trouble, and maybe after a very public humiliation, he can have Elijah executed, and the people will be that much more devoted to the worship of Baal, and that much more devoted to him as their king, right? And everything seems to be on his side, in the natural, and and, and from a human perspective, everything's on his side. He's got 450 prophets to one. And not only that, Elijah chose Mount Carmel. And that might have seemed to him to be a strategic misstep because, I mean, Mount Carmel was a great place to meet with a lot of people, but it was also in that day considered to be the dwelling place of the prophet Baal. And so they've got overwhelming numbers, and now they've got home field advantage. But can I tell you something? When you align yourself with God, you and God make a majority. Somebody say amen to that. When you align yourself with God, you and God make a majority. Now, I'm not saying things like like God's on your side, God loves you more than anyone else, or anything like that, or God loves some people more than anyone else. Nothing like that. What I'm saying is like when during the Civil War, someone asked President Lincoln, and they said, "Do, do you think God's on our side? And he responded to this reporter by saying, I'm not so concerned whether God's on our side, but whether we are on his side. Align yourselves with God and his purposes, and you and God make a majority. And, and Ahab's real mistake here is thinking that the contest was between him and Elijah, when in reality the contest here is between Yahweh and Baal. Our battle is not, battle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers and authorities in high places. And so Ahab here gathers a bunch of people and all the 450 prophets of Baal. And then in verse 21, it says, Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. So so there's the challenge. He says, don't go halfway. Don't, Don't try to serve Baal and then serve Yahweh, then serve Yahweh and then serve Baal and just be confused. Keep going back and forth between the two. That's a miserable, miserable place to be. So Elijah says, you know, choose who you're going to serve. But look at the people's response in verse 21. It says, but the people said nothing. No response at all. I mean, he's appealing to them. Come on, get off the fence. This doesn't even make sense to keep going back and forth. And and he'd like them to forsake Baal and and publicly uh, profess their allegiance to Yahweh and to his covenant, right? But nothing. They don't respond with repentance. They don't respond by forming a mob and, uh, and mauling him or anything like that. Nothing, just apathy. You know, and I guess I don't blame them, because think about this. I mean, on the one hand, they're looking at this prophet Elijah and there's rumors that he's the one who stopped the rain, and there's rumors that he raised this widow woman's son from the dead. He's kind of a prophet, you know, Elijah, you know, a great prophet. And at the same time, though, here's Ahab over here, and he's the worshiper of Baal, and he's had a lot of the prophets of Yahweh uh, killed and all of that. And so there may be, there's likely some fear gripping them as they are also thinking this is a contest between Ahab and Elijah. But think of it, it must have been frustrating for Elijah to make this appeal, and the only response he gets is from the crickets. Going on in verse 22, he says, Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, 
But Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let, let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. That is Yahweh. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Okay, now, that's astonishing. You know, Elijah proposes a competition between Yahweh and Baal. And the people would know who the winner was when one of these gods does something that only a god can do, called fire down from heaven on a day when there wasn't even a cloud in the sky. And by the way, this isn't one of those passages uh, passage that we use to create some doctrine or theology or something like that, um, where we create a cosmic contest to prove God to the unbeliever or something like that, right? Uh, it's not something that seems to be repeated anywhere else in Scripture. I mean, even the apostles really didn't do something like this, right? They didn't go to the Sanhedrin and say, hey, let's have a contest, you know, or to the Romans, and let's have, let's have a contest between Jesus and your gods or anything like that. They just proclaimed the word of the God and walked in the power of the Spirit, right? So this seems to be a one-off in Scripture. And it's not even something that Elijah just decided to do. It's not something that, hey, he thought would just be a great idea, right? He got it from Yahweh, something Yahweh decided should happen. Yahweh's going to prove himself over the god Baal. Verse 24, it says, then all the people said, hey, what you say is good. Okay, so now they're talking, right? Now they found their voice. We like this idea, right? Because, you know, I think it kind of got them off the hook. Because if one of the gods answers, well, then it's kind of obvious, right? We can worship one of the other gods. And if no one answers, well, then we can just go merrily on our way, limping between uh, the two gods as before. Going on, verse 25, it says, Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first. Since there are so many of you, call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So Elijah gives them every advantage. They've got the numbers. They've got home field advantage, and now they've got the ball first. Or they've got the first bull, I guess. Verse 26. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. Okay, so several hours of this calling out to Baal, shouting, getting louder and louder, dancing, doing anything they can to get Baal's attention. And finally, it says at noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he's a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought, or maybe he's traveling. You know, maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. You know, maybe his hearing isn't so good, so shout a little bit louder, right? Maybe he forgot the snooze button, right? So, hey, wake him up. Maybe he's sleeping. Or maybe, just maybe, nobody's there. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Now, why in the world did they do that? Well, it was part of their cultic beliefs that Baal was aroused by the smell of blood. And so here they're going all the way. They're going all out to try to get Baal's attention. Verse 29 says, Midday passed. And they continued their frantic prophesying until the time of the evening sacrifice. And I love this part. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. And so Elijah finally, and I think kind of mercifully here, 
puts an end to all of this frantic shouting and prophesying and dancing around and cutting themselves with swords, right? I mean, I think any of us, if we'd been there watching that all day long, you had just about enough of that, right? So Elijah gave them more than enough opportunity. Going on in verse 30. It says, Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. So he wants them to come close so they can all see. There's, there's no uh, fancy stuff going on here, right? No sleight of hand or anything like that. It says, They came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it, large enough to hold two seers of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water, and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. And now remember here, there's a drought on. Um, people have been having trouble finding water. And King Ahab himself had recently just sent people throughout the land, and even he himself had gone throughout the land looking for water. And so I can imagine, you know, there might be some people there who thought he was nuts. Some people there who thought he was just going a little bit too far here and wasting some resources. But one thing's for sure. Everyone now knew that the only way that offering was going to be lit was if God Almighty lit it himself. The fire was, uh, the sacrifice was drenched, the wood was drenched, and then Elijah steps forward to pray. Now, I'm going to read this prayer, and what I'd like is for some of you to look at your watch for a second. Maybe look at the, uh, uh, take out your phone and look at the stopwatch on your phone or something like that, and just time this prayer that Elijah prayed. Ready? Here we go. Elijah steps forward and he prays this. He says, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. All right, now, how long did Elijah pray? Somebody. Was it? 18? 18, 20 seconds? You know, something like that? I mean, the prophets of Baal wailed and cried out and cut themselves for what looks like six or eight hours and nothing. But Elijah prays for less than half a minute here. I mean, what did James say uh, in that passage we read last week? That the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. All right, now notice some things about this prayer here. First, notice the phrase, at your command. So again, we see that this wasn't just some great idea that Elijah got or something that was birthed in his heart. It was at God's command, God's idea. And the reason Isaiah, or Elijah knows about it, by the way, is that he's a man who stood before the presence of God, who stood in the presence of the Lord, spent time with God. Even though the public prayer was very short, it was a culmination of an awful lot of time spent standing in the presence of God. And I think that that idea is something that we can take and apply to our lives, to our prayer lives. I mean, think about it. The prophets of Baal spent no time with the king of kings, no time in the presence of Yahweh, but lots of time all day calling out, making a show of public prayers, right? The 
Elijah spent much time with the king of kings in private and prayed a short, powerful prayer in public. Think about the Pharisees. Didn't have much room in the heart for spending time with God in private. Oh, but my goodness, they spent much time on street corners in public making uh, prayers for show, right? Jesus spent much time in prayer in private. But spent how much time uh, giving thanks for uh, a few fish, small fish and loaves of bread before a crowd of thousands was fed with that. And so maybe, maybe as we look at our prayer lives, that ought to be the pattern, right? Now, I'm not saying that, you know, there shouldn't be times when the body of Christ gathers for prayer and even praying long sometimes. You know, you can see that in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. That, that's a Bible thing, right? I mean, tonight we're having our prayer and praise service. I invite all of you to come to that as we pray together and seek God um, for our culture and our community together, right? But what I am suggesting is that maybe when we look at our prayer life, it should look more like Elijah's. Maybe it should look more like Jesus' prayer life. It should have much, much praying in private, standing before God, hearing the heart and desire of God, so that when we're in public, we're praying the powerful prayers that God commands. He's already commanded. All right, now look at the two reasons given for this prayer. First, look what it says in verse 37. Elijah's praying, so that these people will know that I'm right and that Ahab is wrong. Is that what it says? No, no. He says, no. So that these people will know that you, Lord, Yahweh, are God. Right? It's not about Elijah. It's not about being vindicated. It's not about being right. It's not even about getting support for his own ministry or anything like that. There's no promise that, hey, if you'll give to the ministry, I'll make it rain. Right? There's no promise that if you'll sow a seed of faith into my ministry, then God will produce a great harvest into your fields. It's nothing like that. He just wants them to know God. And that ought to be the aim of our prayers, that God be known, that precious people encounter the loving and gracious God that we know. And then the second reason, it says he goes on to say, verse 37, that so that these people will know that you are turning their hearts back again. It was about the hearts of the people turning to God. It was always about their hearts. I mean, even in the three-and-a-half-year drought, I mean, it wasn't just about the Lord getting angry and punishing people until he felt better or anything like that. The drought was actually the first contest between Yahweh and Baal. Because, you see, Baal, considered to be a fertility god, and as such, he was supposed to have control over the weather, over the rain, and over their crops. And so the people worshiped Baal in the hopes that they would receive his favor and have a plentiful harvest. And so it was this great embarrassment to the prophets of Baal that it had not rained for 42 months because this one prophet of Yahweh said so. And so when God said that it would not rain, it was not just some random punishment. He was humbling the false god Baal the same way that he humbled the false gods of Egypt in the time of Moses. It was God showing the people that he was the true God. It was God trying to draw their hearts back to him. What does the greatest commandment say? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Their greatest king, it says, was a man after God's own heart. So God's trying to get their hearts back. As a matter of fact, at the dedication of the temple, listen to this prayer that Solomon prayed. Part of Solomon's prayer said this. When the heavens are shut up and there's no rain, because your people have sinned against you. And when they pray towards this place and give praise to your name and turn from their sin because you've afflicted them, 
Then hear from heaven and forgive their sin, the sin of your servants, your people Israel. Teach them the right way to live and send rain on the land you gave your people for an inheritance. And right here, we are seeing the literal fulfillment of that prayer that Solomon prayed at the dedication of the temple. The people had forsaken God. The heavens were stopped up. But God wants their hearts back again, and he's about to send rain. God always has been. He is now and always be will be about people's hearts, about being after people's hearts. And so maybe like Elijah, our prayers also may, should all be in line with God's heart to reach people. Our prayers for our state and our nation, God, reach people's hearts. Our prayers for our representatives and our mayors and our governors and our president, God, reach their hearts. Our prayers for Lancaster, God, reach people's hearts. Our prayers for our culture, for our communities, God, reach people's hearts. Going on in verse 38, it says, Then fire from the Lord, the fire of Yahweh, fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. Now that is some fire. I mean, this isn't just Elijah taking out a magnifying glass and saying, hey, let's see if we can um, get something smoldering here a little bit or anything like that. I mean, this is fire falling from heaven. In the sight of everybody, right? The soggy sacrifice is, is consumed. The soggy wood is consumed. The very stones of the altar, it says, are consumed by this fire. And the excess water that had run off into the trench is licked up by the flames of this fire from God. I mean, there's no doubt that this fire falls from Yahweh. And when the people saw this, they fell prostrate and they cried, The Lord, He is God! The Lord, He is God! And so now they're impressed, right? Now they're responding. Now they've got something to say. Yahweh is God. Yahweh is the true God. We'll serve Yahweh. And then going on in verse 40, it says, Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. Now, there's a lot of controversy about this verse, and I could have just skipped over it, but um, I, I thought it, it was kind of important that we need to address it. Right Now, some think that Elijah was carried away. Some commentators think he was carried away here uh, by fanaticism and went beyond the direction of the Lord, right? And others think that Elijah here was carrying out uh, and following God's directive, that it agreed with um, what was in the law of Moses. Now, whatever you think about this verse, there's a few important things to keep in mind when you look at this verse. First, these prophets had been teaching and leading the people into the horrible, horrible practice of child sacrifice. I don't know if you can say how horrible this is. And they probably, many of them, if not all of them, participated in it themselves. Then also, it's likely that they were the driving force and motivation behind the execution of the prophets of Yahweh. There's no telling how many people died because of them, how much blood that they're responsible for directly is on their hands. So they weren't just some sincerely misled religious leaders. They were very violent people. And then finally, this is an agreement with the law of Moses, which they were under at that time, which said that for those who posed as prophets and led the people to worship false gods, it was a capital offense. The punishment was death. It was part of their civil law. And it, it flowed from, and this is really important, this flowed from the fact that Yahweh himself had personally delivered them 
from Egypt. He brought them to the mountain. He personally appeared to them in the pillar of cloud and fire and spoke with his audible voice to them. And so because of that, it was a serious thing in Israel to prophesy in the name of another God. Now, it should be noted that this law was unique to ancient Israel. It was not given to any other country. No other country was supposed to be putting people to death for this. And so there's no nation or no people today that should be putting people to death for idolatry. That judgment is now left entirely in the hands of God uh, to do what he will when people stand before him um, at the judgment seat of God. And so I want to say really clearly, all right, that this passage or any other passage should never be taken as any type of justification for any type of vigilante justice or any other kind of violence. All right, going on in verse 41, he says this. Elijah said to Ahab, go, eat, and drink, for there is the sound of heavy rain. Now, that was a statement of faith. Because at the moment, there was no sound of rain anywhere, and there was not even a cloud in the sky. However, remember verse 1, it said, The word of the Lord came to Elijah, Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain. So again, he's not just talking about his wish or his desire. He's sharing the word of the Lord here. He's not just engaging in name it, claim it, or blab it, grab it theology, right? He's got this from God. This is the word of the Lord. There's the sound of heavy rain. Verse 42, so Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel, bent down to the ground, and put his face between his knees. Okay, so Elijah's going to pray more, and notice a couple things about these verses. For Ahab, the immediate crisis is over. And telling Ahab to go get something to eat, it's like Elijah saying to him, all right, listen, it's all over, Yahweh's God, you're still the king, there's going to be rain and the return of God's blessing now, so just go ahead and have something to eat. The crisis is past for Ahab. But while the world is eating and relaxing, the prophet is praying again. While the world is eating and just relaxing, the prophet is praying again. Now, can I tell you, I don't know how 2021 is going to go. You know, I hope a lot of people are thinking, okay, we've got a vaccine here coming and all of that, and and hopefully sometime this year um, all the... uh, counts of the, this virus are going to go down and we're going to be past this and all that and that would be great and people are looking for a return of blessing and that type of thing um, whether that happens or not even if that happens the church should still be found praying seeking god you know when the world is relaxing enjoying the blessings and favor of god that's not a time for the church to say all right we can just give up on praying that's the time for the church to continue praying, to continue seeking God. And I want to look at this prayer for just a second, just a little bit more that we're going to find out about prayers that make a difference, and then we're going to close, all right? So Elijah begins to pray. There's some unfinished business. It's still a matter of this rain that's got to come, right? And after a while of praying, he tells his servant, go and look towards the sea. And he went up and looked, and there was nothing there, he said. Seven times Elijah said, go back. The seventh time, the servant reported, A cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. Right now, just notice a few things about this passage here. First, why in the world did Elijah even bother praying about this rain anyway? I mean, God had already told him it was going to rain, right? I mean, there shouldn't have been any doubt. So why is he praying about it? I mean, is there any chance that God's going to change his mind here and not send the rain? Well, I don't think so. I mean, that would be kind of really weird and strange after 
God just showed him, uh, won this contest with Baal, and all of the people said, Yahweh's God, Yahweh's God, for God to just change his mind and not send the rain, then that would be really weird. I don't think God's going to change his mind. Sometimes, sometimes it's the right thing to do to talk with God about things that he's already revealed in his word. I mean, I know there's some people, you can find some teachers who say, you should never do that. If it's a reveal in his word, you, you just take it on faith and you, uh, and you just go with that. Or if you do, it's some type of lack of faith. But the scriptures show us a number of times when godly people prayed over things that God had already revealed in his word. Like Daniel. Daniel says that uh, when, he, after, when he was old in life, he says, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And then he prays this long prayer um, of, of repentance and, and confession and saying, you know, God, everything you did was right and everything that we, uh, we and our fathers did was wrong and you were right to send us into exile and all of those things and agrees with that and then begins to pray for God to act. And he ends his prayer by saying, Lord, listen, Lord, forgive, Lord, hear and act. He's praying that God would do these things that he's already promised that he's going to do. Why? I mean, he's already promised that this captivity is going to be 70 years, and it's in his word. I mean, why pray about it? Any doubt that this was going to happen? And what this is, it's the prayer of alignment. It's the prayer of aligning our hearts with God's word, with God's plan. Saying, yeah, God, I can see in your word. This is your plan. This is where you're moving. This is what you're doing, God. I'm aligning my heart with that. I'm not going to pray against your heart or go some other direction. God, I'm aligning my heart with your word. And this is what Elijah's prayer was as well. He's aligning his heart with God's revealed plan. But there's more here as well. Like, why, if it was God's will, why does it take praying seven times before he sees any results? How many of you have had that experience? All right, or all of you, as soon as you say something, it's just like that, right? No, you all experience that, right? Sometimes you pray, and you pray, and you pray. Uh, other times you pray uh, one time, and God brings the answer just like that. And sometimes you pray seven times, you know, or, or 14 times or 20 times, right, until God brings the answer. Well, can I tell you something? I've got the answer for you this morning. After 35 years of reading and studying the Bible... After a quarter century of being a pastor and teaching the word of God and getting a master's degree in theology along the way, I have the answer for you. Are you ready for it? Going to write it down? I don't know. We don't know why that is. As a matter of fact, all the commentaries I consulted on this, this week, written by people who have doctorates in theology, right? None of them even attempted to answer the why question. And what that shows us it's kind of what we talked about in week one, that there's, there's no formula for praying prayers that make a difference, right? You can't reduce it to A, B, C, D. You can't reduce it to a five-step process that's guaranteed to get results, right? Because at its root, it's intensely relational. I mean, look at what we've seen in Elijah's prayer life so far. We know that he stood in the presence of God. That's a foundation, right? He prayed fervently that it wouldn't rain, and he receives this word from God to that effect. Uh, um, and so then a short time later... Someone close to him dies unexpectedly and tragically. And he prays in earnestly and fervently again, not sure what's going to happen. And then on Mount Carmel, after standing in the presence of God and knowing what was going to happen, 
he, he prays a prayer that lasts 20 seconds and it results in fire falling from heaven like that. And then here he also knows what's going to happen, that God's going to send rain, but he prays. And then after standing praying for a while or kneeling praying for a while, um, sends his servant, nothing. Then he prays again, nothing. Then he prays again, nothing. And again and again and again, nothing. Six times and nothing. No formula. And then finally, on the seventh time, the answer comes, but it's just like a wisp of cloud coming from the horizon. And Elijah knows, there's the answer. And finally, God sends rain. The uh, sky grew dark with clouds, and this torrent comes, and God sends the rain. No formula. doesn't work the same way every time. Sometimes you pray, and answers come quickly, just like that. Sometimes, like Jesus taught, you ask and you keep on asking, you knock, you keep on knocking, you seek, and you keep on seeking, right? Sometimes, like the Apostle Paul, you pray and you ask and you pray and you ask and you pray and you ask and God finally says, you know what? That's not my plan. My grace is going to be sufficient. My plan's a little bit different, right? And then you align yourself with God's plan. No formula. But there are some ingredients that are constant, right? Praying earnestly and fervently. Standing in the presence of God. And you know, even when someone receives a very quick answer like that, and a sudden miraculous answer to prayer, usually you can see that person has been standing in the presence of God. You know, most people, some, the people who, who just use God for flare prayers, like when you get in trouble, they don't usually receive that kind of an answer. Because the problem is, you know, some people, they kind of view God, you know, like a nice addition or some accessory to their lives, right? Something that is just makes a nice accessory to what they're doing in their lives. Or like a pet. Right? Something you keep on the shelf in a glass case, like a hamster or something like that. It's always going to be there. You take it down when you want it. The children play with it. Oh, it isn't that nice. Then it goes back you know, in the shelves. You can look at it whenever you want, take it out, play with it whenever you want. It'll always be there. Some people treat God like a pet that way. Can I tell you something? God is not a hamster. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's got eyes of fire, and he's got a voice like thunder. He's the Alpha and the Omega and the beginning and the end, and the one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Say, I don't want to wait for that day to do it under compulsion. I want to bow my knee to him today and align my heart with him and his purposes and his grace and his goodness and his mercies today. All right, now let's stop there for today. Next week, we're going to look at Elijah's prayer on Mount Horeb. But in the meantime, I just want to challenge you this week to be a man, to be a woman, to be a young person who hears God in his word and who prays powerful prayers of the righteous. Be a person who prays prayers that make a difference. Would you bow with me in prayer for a moment? Dear Heavenly Father, God, we bless your name. You are an awesome, amazing God. Thank you for this example of Elijah in your word, God. And God, we're thankful that you want to hear from us, God. So God, help us like Elijah, God, be the kind of people who stand before you, and hear you, hear your heart in your word, God. Help us like Elijah, God. Be people who will faithfully represent you to our world. God, help us like Elijah to be people who pray earnestly and fervently in the power of 
the Holy Spirit, God. May we pray powerful and effective prayers, even this week, God. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.